Hello, and welcome to the So What podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues that ask the obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly and Travis Buchanan. Well, as always, we'd like to thank you for listening to the So What podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at sowhatpodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episode can be submitted by emailing hello at sowhatpodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at sowhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for the So What Podcast. So Wycliffe is now, they didn't want a rallying point for him, but ironically, his ashes go into the ocean and spread all over the world. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now, John Huss, Jan Huss. Oh, Can I just Huss. highlight something yeah. from the Wycliffe summary is, I think you said something very important. He came to hold all of these views that were going against the stream of official church dogma of his day, rejection of... Pope's authority, or that there should even be that office, and changing his understanding of the nature of Christ's presence in the Eucharist, wanting to translate the Bible into the vernacular of the people. The irony, of course, in the Bible translation is that that's what Jerome and other translators mm-hmm. were doing in the fifth century, and Vulgate comes from vulgar, which is, you know, the common language or the language of the people. But you said, and Wycliffe was doing these things or began to have these opinions because he was reading the Bible. And he was studying the Bible and being a good theologian, reading the Bible, reading the Bible, thinking about these things, and then looking at the church and analyzing its practice and seeing a huge disconnect between the two. It wasn't as if someone pulled Wycliffe aside and said, you know, put some political rebellious ideas in his head. He was reading the text and then seeing a huge gap between how the church was described, its power structures, how it should function in society, and then a church with a bunch of power and control, and then how it was using that. You brought up Peter Waldo at the beginning, Mm -hmm. and that's exactly Peter Waldo in the late 12th century. That's exactly what he did. He was a a rich merchant who managed to buy a copy of the Bible. He read it, and then he was like, hold on a second. This Now, the church in his day was not quite as what we would see in in the 1300s. Really, the 13th century is, in my opinion, when you start to see the Roman Catholic Church really get away from, I would say, better teaching. And I think even modern Roman Catholics would say the same. They would recognize from the, you know, Boniface VIII through Leo X in the early 1500s that this is really a low point because even the Roman Catholic Church recognized the need to reform. Yeah. So the other thing too, like you have Peter Walder reading it, but one thing I mentioned at the very beginning is you have people, you know, you look at Thomas Aquinas, he's interacting with scripture. Peter Lombard, they're interacting with scripture. It's not this, that you have just the rare theologian who interacts with scripture. The problem is whose authority, right? I can read scripture, but I have to trust what the Catholic church tells me to believe about it or things of that nature. But he, for example, Thomas Bradwardine, upon whom he relies Thomas Bradwardine is judging the theologians of his time and calling them semi-Pelagians. Well, he just calls them Pelagians. Semi-Pelagianism 
isn't a word that comes around to like 1577, but still he's like, you guys are all Pelagians. He goes, read John six, read Romans nine and read Augustine. He's like, God has to choose you. You can't be doing works to receive salvation. So you still have this link there, which I always like to point out. The medieval time periods in my mind, like the wild west of theology, because there's a lot of loose ends that the Catholic church has not tied up. So you have a Franciscan bend, a Dominican bend, an Augustinian bend, a Benedictine bend, and they all have differences in their theology, but at the time they're all orthodox because they have not been condemned yet, or at least they're acceptable. So it's always fun because you can find people's views. You're like, holy cow, look what this guy's saying. I totally agree with this, you know, but then later on it'll be condemned at the Council of Trent in the 1500s. One thing I forgot to mention too with Wycliffe is I mentioned his followers. His followers play a very important role leading up to the Reformation in England. They're called the Lollards. They don't know exactly where the word comes from, but they think most people say it comes from the word to mumble because they would mumble as they would read the Bible because you'd read the Bible out loud. They would mumble in prayer as they would go from town to town. But they basically were going town to town, preaching the gospel, and doing small group Bible study. So the Lollards, they finished the translation of Wycliffe, and they were basically like missionaries in a sense. Now, they get condemned because an important politician is a Lollard who tries to overthrow the government. And so basically they're like, all right, we're just going to all you Lollards are illegal. But they persist up until the time of Luther. And so in a sense, the Reformation takes off in England in part because Lollardy had prepared the ground for it. You have this movement that's been going on for a hundred years of preaching the gospel, of of encouraging people to read it in in their own language. So the Lollards are very important, and then they just become a a form of Protestantism, or they just merge in with Protestantism when you get to Mm -hmm. the Reformation. I think this theme of Scripture is it's not original to say, but so crucial to the Reformation, uh, especially, and you see it up through Luther. You know, it's telling that it makes sense, but it's telling that the church was disallowing translation of the Bible into the language of the people, because whenever that seemed to happen, they started to object to the church's, you know, practice and authority. (laughs) That's right. And so much easier to just keep it, you know. That's right. You're not interpreting it right. Yeah. So that only those who are learned can read it. But one of my favorite anecdotes about just the power of the Bible to set the Christian free. And you see, so is Thomas Lineker, who was, I think, a 15th century, I don't know if he was a Lollard or English theologian, and Erasmus's translation of the Greek New Testament had made its way. So you talked about Wycliffe going back to the Latin, but Erasmus's Greek translation is then being read in England by some of these English theologians. And Lineker's comment was, so it was almost as if this new light had dawned on, this is what the Bible teaches, really. And Lineker's comment was, either this is not the gospel mm-hmm. or we are not Christians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's oh, a good line. And that was how dramatic of a, you know, confrontation with the truth of scripture was, yeah. was this is different, you know, from what we've been receiving through the church. So, The issue of authority and the centralization of power, very strong in the medieval Catholic Church and the confusion over how that relates or the statements of how that's going to relate to the civil authority, but the the legacy of Protestantism and the priesthood of the believer, this decentralization of power was obviously a significant shift and closely related to 
the encouragement of literacy in the laity, putting the Bible in the language of the people, reading the scriptures for yourself. I mean, you see the, you know, even back in Acts, the Bereans are praised as being noble because they would listen to Paul's preaching and then examine the scriptures for themselves to see if whether these things he was saying is true. But there is a crisis of authority also, or a vacuum left. So we see one of the other legacies of Protestantism is this increasing splintering and denominational breaks and things and a discussion of, well, who is who is the authority? Is it just my private Bible reading and interpretation? You know, if I disagree with my pastor or the church, I can just go across the street and start my own church. Or if I am put under church discipline in this church, I can just go across the street and be an unknown congregant in another church. Mm-hmm. And so that's something we should discuss at least at some point yep. in this series, if not today, of what are some of the unintended consequences perhaps of these theological shifts. One of the things, again, I'm a church history person, so I value church history, but none of these people, Wycliffe, Huss, and even when you get to the Reformation, it's not until you get to the Anabaptists, none of them just wipe away church history. Yeah. They judge church history through the Bible. So in that sense, they don't have to relive controversies over the Trinity and things like this. Now, the ones that just go flat out, it's me, we're starting from scratch, they relive everything because they're like, oh, look, it never says that Jesus is God. I'm like, well, first of all, you're not reading scripture properly because you find it all over there. But so I think when you deal with that topic, right, church history helps us to see, okay, here are the parameters these people are looking at. Let me see how they interpret scripture. One of my main reasons I think people should know church history is it's a great cloud of witnesses in the sense that you have people in your life you trust, right? There's a woman at your church. She's been a Christian for 80 years. You've seen, she has a lot of wisdom. You've seen how she's approached different things in her life. When she talks to you about her Christian walk, it has value. When your pastor says things, these are people that you trust. And in a sense, all these people through church history, and even back through the Old Testament prophets, these are doing the same thing. Now, I would say the people post Bible are not inspired in the way that we use the Bible as inspired, but certainly you're foolish if you don't take time to understand what they say. The Trinity always falls under attack, and people are like, Trinity, I'm like, okay, I want you to go and read Athanasius's On the Trinity against the Arians, read Augustine On the Trinity, read Thomas Aquinas, and after you read all that, then come back to me, because your arguments have been dealt with before. Mm-hmm. Why do you think you're smarter than, I mean, you look at these people in history, you're smarter than Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, well then at least read them and interact with them before you all of a sudden make these goofy claims that you do. And that's very applicable today when you get to issues of homosexuality in the church, because you have these people that go, ah, it's just about love. I'm like, okay, there's never been a single person in the history of the church or in in Jewish history before that that has ever affirmed this. Why? Why don't we look and see what they have to say about it? Or are you smarter than 3,500 years of Christians and faithful Jews before that. It's the whole C.S. Lewis chronological snobbery, right? Yeah. You, you refuse to acknowledge these people are valuable because you and your private reading of scripture by yourself in your context where you have a gay friend, well, it can't be that bad, which again, I'm all for having gay friends. They need the gospel and you know we don't have time to get into all that, but it's just one of those things where this person's nice, therefore I have to approve what they do. Yeah. Nobody's done this. So this That's, is way okay. off topic. No, I'm sorry. sorry. No, it's... <laughs> We're going down another path. <laughs> yeah, yes. We didn't want to discuss homosexuality during this particular podcast. Yeah, yeah. So we've straight so we'll cut somewhat, this but this is terrific. And I think there's something so important that I would want to highlight in this, which is the Bible is a unique book in that you take the Old Testament, for example. Here is a record of an ancient people that has preserved 
all of its blemishes and faults and contains within it its own criticisms and judgments. Whereas you have, you know, other comparatively whitewashed records of kings' reigns or histories of a people, Israel does not come off looking very well if you read the Old Testament. And you have the prophets accusing them and judging them and calling them to a standard. You get to the New Testament, and I mean, the Bible reads like Mm anti-propaganda. You would think if you were trying to propagandize a religion, you would want to clear some things up, like how many witnesses at the tomb or how many angels, or why does Peter, who's authorizing Mark's gospel, come off looking like such a denier of Christ and taking a vow that he never knew him. I mean, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, here are the first congregations, and he's saying, here's what to do with your incestuous members. You know, it's so messy, Mm -hmm. but I think it's unique in world literature in that it contains this self-critical, judgmental stance and accountability to its own standards that it avowedly fails to live up to. And so you see, it's important, I think, that Wycliffe, and Luther, at least at the beginning, are not trying to break from the church. They're trying to reform it. They're saying, look, I've read our authoritative record in the scriptures, and I've seen our contemporary practice, and they are out of joint. You know, you have Paul saying, Peter, your behavior's out of step with the gospel in mm-hmm. Galatians, because mm-hmm. you're breaking table fellowship with these Gentiles, because you're scared of what the Jews in Jerusalem are going to think of you if you break some of our kosher laws which are subordinate to the gospel. Mm -hmm. I just think that's such a unique thing about Christianity is it has this mechanism within itself to judge itself, to criticize Mm -hmm. itself. You know, the judgment begins with the church, Paul says at the end of Galatians, you know, the John the Baptist saying that the ax is laid at the root of the tree and you better repent. And I'm not talking about the world first. You know, we we look around, we get in our little Christian communities and Christian colleges and schools and we say, gosh, I'm so glad we're not dirty and secular like those (laughs) other sinners out there. And the whole point point of, of the Holy Spirit is, you know, he's convicting the world of sin, but it's it begins with, with ourselves. Add to that Luther's first article in the 95 Theses that the life of a Christian is one and meant to be in continual repentance over and over and over again. I think that highlights a really important point, too, that has been made already by Dr. Timothy George on this show, that the Reformers were not looking to jettison themselves from tradition. They understood that tradition was very important, but it has to be subordinate. So when we hear that term, and we're going to hear it in future episodes, sola scriptura, it doesn't mean Bible only. It means Bible over. So there's another Latin term, I think nuda scriptura is what Dr. George said. It's not like we. it's just the Bible in me, in my room. And so when I do disagree with the pastor, I can just leave and become an Arian again. Jesus was created. Well, we've already, like you said, visited this. And so what they're pushing back against was a deflation in the authority of Scripture and an inflation of the authority of of tradition. The church at the time had it exactly inversed, and the gospel that they were preaching was one of power, hunger, and marginalization of those who need to hear the gospel for salvation by faith alone and who were not receiving it because they couldn't hear the gospel in their own language. They couldn't read the Bible in their own language, and the preaching that they were hearing, if any, was anemic at best. I'm glad all this came up because— it is the main lasting thing we get from Wycliffe. And I think it's good, as, as you, you mentioned, the whole idea of Reformation, right, is there throughout the Bible. In the life of a Christian, we have to always be reforming, mm-hmm. right? We have, to, we have to allow the Holy Spirit to convict us, and we always have to be judged by God's Word and changing, which I think still applies today. 
because every generation of Christians, you look back historically, and I always have to deal with people who will say, you know, I don't know what's up with these reformers. I mean, they were executing people and stuff like that. And I'm like, yeah, I don't agree with that, but let's at least understand what was going on at the time because every generation of Christians has a blind spot. There's always something there that our cultural context or political context prevents us from really getting a clear view of, which is always why it's good too to interact with Christians around the world mm -hmm. because then you see things from a different mm -hmm. cultural perspective and a lot of times can help judge you and your culture. But that's something that this generation that's right now you know, in 20, 30 years from now, that generation will look back and be like, I can't believe this generation That's did right. X, whatever yep. it is. So we always have to have grace when we look at these people, right? We always have to have grace when we look at other Christians. And even though we can judge them with scripture, we can say, I don't think it was right for Michael Servetus to have been executed at the stake. But we can at least say, but at that time, it made sense to them. And while I would say it's wrong, let me not just throw everything out because I disagree with them on this one point. I mean, that's the same today with Christian music. I've read an article by Russ Moore. Somebody wrote Christian music, but they ended up becoming a heretic. And he was like, well, if the music's still good, that word's still there. You can still sing the song. Doesn't mean you're supporting, mm -hmm. you know, what became of it. All right, that's relevant. So yeah. but just last thing on that, sorry for all these asides, but I've just been reading a lot about the American founding and the Declaration of Independence. And one of the things Thomas Jefferson said was that every generation needs its revolution or a revolution. And what he was not saying was every generation should overthrow its government in a bloody war. But what he was... I think saying is that every generation needs to revolve to come back to its foundations mm -hmm. and return to the foundations. And I think of the Reformation cry ad fontes that Melanchthon and Luther promoted, which means return to the fount or return to the sources of scripture and the fathers, and then criticize or weigh or judge the current practice. And so just because a country is founded on liberty doesn't mean it's going to continue down that road. You need to continue to evaluate where you're at. And so perhaps an analog is every generation needs a reformation, not necessarily a big divisive split in the church, but to say, how is our practice and, you know, take the American church in the South or whatever your context is, how is it lining up with scripture and how is it lining up with the great tradition that we've inherited and where do we need to criticize and reform ourselves so that the next generation doesn't say, gosh, they really blew the homosexuality thing, or they really blew the gender debate, or they really blew the relationship between church and state political agenda, et cetera. So, so that's John Wycliffe. Wycliffe's writings eventually make it to Bohemia, which is modern day Czech Republic, through students that studied at Oxford and brought Wycliffe's writings back to Bohemia. A priest there by the name of Jan Hus picks it up, is inspired by Wycliffe, and what's his story? Let me address why you have Bohemians in Oxford, because you always think, I was always like, I don't get Wycliffe's views go to Bohemia, but not Denmark, not Austria. Mm, what yeah, is this about? Mm -hmm. So the Anne of Bohemia had was married to the King of, of England. And so you had this alliance there. And so you had a transfer of students coming from Bohemia to Oxford, to England to learn, and then they brought it back. So I always found that was intriguing as to why it's in Bohemia and nowhere else. Wycliffe's views are nowhere else in Europe as far as we know, except Bohemia. 
So Huss, and you have to forgive me because I, I often call him John Huss because I anglicize it. So I interchange Jan and John. I'll do my best to use Jan because I already dealt with John Wycliffe. But if I slip, forgive me. So Jan it's, Huss- It's okay. There were a lot of Johns at this time who were reforming. Name. Yeah. That's right. It's a great name. So Jan Hus is born around 1370. We don't really know between 1369, 1372. And he wants to become a priest because he wants a nice, easy life. So it tells you the view of the priesthood. If I can become a priest and then I have it easy, which interesting Menno Simons of later Anabaptist fame was the same way. He was a Catholic priest and had it great. Loved it. Gaming, dicing, drinking. He was loved by everybody. And then he was like, wait a second. That's so. uh, really ironic because of the movement he left behind. The That's Mennonites right. are kind of anti all of those right. things. Well, he has a dramatic change. There's, yeah. a, there's a little ditty that is sung. The Pope, he leads a merry life, merry life, free of every care and strife, care and strife. He drinks the best of Rhenish wine. I wish the Pope's gay life were mine. <laughs> Is that you? I've heard you sing that before. Yeah, and I, it's better sung. I in, didn't want to sing it on your of, podcast. In and, time of stress. Yeah, and spoil <laughs> yeah. spoil it. But. Yeah. So Jan Hus, marriage between a Bohemian That's royalty right. and English royalty. Mm -hmm. And so now we have cross-pollination mm -hmm. of their academics. So he ends up becoming priest of Bethlehem Chapel at the University of Prague, and he eventually becomes the rector of the University of Prague. And Prague, the University of Prague is in the Holy Roman Empire. And the Holy Roman Empire is dominated by the Germans. The Holy Roman Empire is a weird entity. You could do a whole week-long study of that. But it's a conglomeration of a lot of different people groups and counties and duchies and everything else with an elected head. So there's a lot of German professors at Prague and students. And the Bohemian students fall in love with John Wycliffe and his writings. The Germans don't like it. And the, the Bohemians don't like it. Yet. yet. The Germans exactly, don't exactly. like it yet. <laughs> but the Bohemians don't like the German presence because it's, I mean, it's like an occupied force. Not really, but you have these foreigners that are here and, and they, they kind of are controlling things. So you start to have contention between the Bohemians and the Germans, so much so that the Germans leave. The German faculty leave and go, there's a bunch of Wycliffeites here and this is heresy. And Jan Hus is the main preacher of Wycliffe ideas. He is a preacher and he begins to do what Wycliffe says. So he's preaching the gospel. He believes that you should have- In the, in the Bohemian language. In the Bohemian mm -hmm. language. You should have the Bible in the Bohemian language. So all these views of Wycliffe are there in Jan Hus. One thing to note, he never gets to the point of questioning transubstantiation. So he's never going to get in trouble for that probably he doesn't have time, right? It's one of those things where if he lived long enough, maybe that would have gone as well. So in 1411, you have three popes at this point in time. And one of the popes has issued indulgences to support a war with another pope. And Jan Hus is going to argue against indulgences. So you're going to get into indulgences when you deal with Martin Luther, but a short way of looking at indulgences is it's basically comes out of the crusading movement. It's a way for when you do confession, you have to be contrite, you confess your sins, and then you have to do satisfaction. So you often hear, you go, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. You confess your sins. And then he says, okay, say three Hail Marys, right? That's the satisfaction part. That is where you are doing something 
to show that you are sincere in your contrition. You really feel contrite, you really repent, therefore I'm going to do something for it. Kind of like if you punish your kid, okay, well, you punched your brother in the face, you said you're sorry, now you have to sit in your room for a half hour, right? You have some sort of punishment attached to it. So in confession, you have that element that's there. And an indulgence was a way of getting out of the satisfaction portion. So it's you often hear it's buying the forgiveness of sins. That's really not correct. Theologically, you're basically paying money so you don't have to do the satisfaction portion. And so sometimes you might have to go on a pilgrimage to Rome. You could go on a crusade, would fulfill these things. And if you were a really, really, really bad person, an indulgence was a great thing to have. You're like, oh, I just basically took over a whole country and murdered them all. Oh, well, hey, uh, I'll just pay, you know, a million dollars and I can get out of it. So the popes would use this anytime they needed to raise money. And of course, all of the Renaissance popes, this is how they you know, were able to pay Michelangelo and all those people. All of those works in Rome were paid for by indulgences that the pope issued. And so the the need for raising money at this point in time would be to fight the other pope, fight the other pope. Right. So we're still with the Avignon the and That's right. Yeah, yeah. We have okay. three popes now. Mm-hmm. This is John the twenty third, who's fighting another pope. So the pope doesn't like this. He doesn't like hearing that indulgences are not valid because some indulgences you could actually pay money to get people out of purgatory, which means that people who have sinned and died, you can actually cover their sins. And it's like, well, they're dead. You have no control over that. And an argument was, look, you're the Pope. You can remit satisfaction that you give out, but you have no control over what other people are doing. So at this point, the Pope starts to put pressure on the University of Prague and is like, hey, you have a dude here who's arguing against what I'm doing. This isn't right. So Huss leaves University of Prague to spare them from going under interdiction, which is where the Pope says, you can have nobody in your area can get married, can go to confession, can take the Eucharist, can be baptized. And so these are all ways that you would receive grace. So you're really hindering people's sanctification. Right. So kind of smoked them out. Right. Right. And so so Huss, of his own volition, left because he didn't want them to have to deal with that. So he goes to Southern Bohemia where he goes and spreads his views, which is always there during the Reformation time period. That neck of the woods is always very pro-reform. That area is always very reform-minded. So he goes there and he continues to preach. And in 1415, there's the Council of Constance, which is the one that finally deals with the problem of the three popes, and they invite him to come. Well, everybody says, if you go there, you're going to be killed. So the Holy Roman Emperor is Sigismund, and he says, hey, look, why don't you go and I'll guarantee you free passage. So, and by this time as well, Huss has taken on pretty much every other view of Wycliffe, the view of the church, right? The church is only the elect of all time. The Eastern Orthodox are included. The Pope has no control over who's in and who's out of the church, which again, it's it's just what you see in Wycliffe. Mm-hmm. So Huss is mainly going to be important, not because he's a theological innovator, but he's putting these theological views into practice and they're really spreading. Whereas with Wycliffe, you had it through the Lollards. With Huss, you have a large territory that's going to buy into this. So he goes to the Council of Constance with the idea that he's going to be protected. So when he gets there, the Catholic Church immediately imprisoned him. And he's like, hey, I have guarantee of free safety. Well, they're like, oh, so the Holy Roman Emperor is going to guarantee free safety. Well, but if you're a heretic, how will that look 
if you who are in an elected position are supporting something like that, hmm, that doesn't really sound too good. And so Sigismund repeals his safe passage and allows Huss to go on trial. So they basically leave him in a prison cell for six months where he's sick and everything else because it's incredibly poor conditions. And they finally trot him out and they have all of his works and they want him to recant. Now, it's fun when you read some of these accounts, same thing happens during the, the Reformation, is usually the people on trial are really honest. They're like, do you say such and such? Yeah, I say that. Do you say this? No, 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 I've never said that. What about this? Uh-huh, I say this, right? So, mm-hmm. so- th- Do you have a pet demon? No, I don't have that, right? So they would be honest about it, but they owned up. Anything they held to, they're like, yep. If you read the account of Michael Sattler, who's an Anabaptist, he's like, no, 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 we've never said this is this, but we do say this. You know, they basically are, are very honest about it. So Huss is like, look, I'm not wrong. If you let me explain to you, I'm not a heretic. These views are actually correct, but they won't let him. And so he is tried as a heretic, and in July of 1415, he is burned at the stake with his works. And in the following year, his friend went with him, Jerome, who was a good friend of us. He is burned as well. The people at Bohemia go crazy. So one of the things they did is while Huss was in prison, they began to offer communion in both kinds, meaning that you could get it in the bread and the wine. And the... the high medieval, late medieval time period, the Catholic Church had basically prevented people from drinking the wine. Earlier, they were allowed, depending on circumstances, you could. If you couldn't swallow and eat, if you were an infant and you were likely to die, they could give you communion just of the wine. So they they didn't have a problem. Roman Catholic theology said, it's okay, as long as you get it in one form or the other, it counts. But when they're reading the Bible, they're like, hey, look, Jesus here at the Last Supper, it's bread and wine. How come we can't have both? You're limiting us. So those are called the utraquists, meaning we both kinds. And so it's a big movement in Bohemia. There's another group called the Taborites who are millenarian, who are even more extreme. But these are two Hussite groups who totally revolt against Roman Catholicism. So their views are there. Of course, the Catholic Church doesn't like this. And in 1419, Wenceslas, the king of Bohemia, dies, and Sigismund becomes king of Bohemia. The Holy Roman Emperor, the dude who put Huss to death, he put him to death, right? He's the civil authority who put him to death, the guy who guaranteed him safety. He becomes king. He has some representatives come to the town of Prague in 1419. And what they always do in Prague, if they don't like you, is they defenestrate you. So the defenestration of Prague in 1419 is where they threw these people out the window as a sign of rebellion. And again, they'll do that. When you look up defenestration of Prague, there's two, 1419 and 1618, which starts the Thirty Years' War, which is another religious conflict. So when they do this, back in those days, when we think of crusades, we think, oh, we're going against the infidel, right? You're going to go against the, the people who took over the Holy Land. Well, Pope Innocent III realized, hey, you can use crusades on heretics in your own lands. And so he initiated the Albigensian crusades against these basically Gnostics in southern France. And so they just raised a crusade to go against the Bohemians. So they raise up a crusade to go and attack Bohemia, and the Bohemians beat them again and again and again, they can never beat the Bohemians. They have these war carts. They pull up and blast out the sides. You know, they, they open up the sides, blast out of it, and then they just zoom away. And so finally, they agree, the Catholic Church and the Bohemians, they say, okay, okay, we'll let you go ahead and worship the way you do. Go ahead, we'll let you do it. So it's interesting that you actually have a group who are allowed to be heretics, if you will, because the Catholic Church can't defeat them. And so 
one group comes back with the Roman Catholic Church later on. They kind of have a, an agreement, but that's going to be there during the Reformation. Those people are, are going to become Protestant because their views pretty much line up in a lot of ways with what are going to be main issues at the Reformation. So it's the same. If you look at Peter Waldo, the guy we talked about a while ago, Peter Waldo, they basically chase his followers up into the Alps. And in the 1500s, Calvin and Geneva and those people go and send missionaries up into the Alps. And the Waldensians are like, oh yeah, we believe this already. So it's like, they're like really these first <laughs> Protestants from yeah. like the 1100s are there in the Alps, which again shows this view is there. Yeah. We have this view of using scripture, of preaching scripture. It doesn't initiate with Luther and then seen through Zwingli and Calvin. It's there all the way back to the Waldensians and through Wycliffe and Huss. So with Huss, you have a movement, a large movement, a large territory that basically is buying into it. Whereas in England, it's more spotty. It's individual. Bohemia has a, a much larger group, but he's not doing much theologically different than Wycliffe and he's drawing it straight from Wycliffe. You'll notice one of the key things with Huss is when you get to Luther at the Leipzig debate, Luther's called a Hussite. It's like, I'm not a Hussite. And of course, how are you gonna know what a Hussite is? I'm Lutheran. Right. <laughs> That's exactly what he said. <laughs> but you figure, this is a heresy. We're not going to promote this. So in between a break that he has with John Eck, his opponent, he goes and reads up on the Hussites and he comes back and he goes, yeah, I be nine Hussite. He's like, yeah, I'm a Hussite. And they're like, okay, well, Hussites are heretics. You agree with them? You're a heretic, right? And Eck wins the debate in 1519. So you can see the Hussites are there. But one of the reasons you would say, well, how come they're not well-known? And that, of course, is going to go to something like the printing press. One of the things you'll see with the Reformation is that the presence of the printing press, which is what, 1453, 1456, is now Luther writes something, boom, it's spread in a week. You have several thousand copies. With Huss, everything's by hand. So you see these people that are doing all of this work, and in Huss's case, getting punished for it, and yet his views can't really spread because you don't have the means, which of course allows the Reformation to take off, one of the main things in that. <laughs> 